All right, I want to take care of a couple little things here at the beginning. One, um, last week, because of the way things fell perfectly, is we got to celebrate um, on Sunday the Marine birthday, and so I got to say happy birthday to Marines, but obviously um, the 11th is Veterans Day, and we don't want to um, miss out on the opportunity to thank the veterans who have uh, served and created the opportunity for us to, to gather together freely. If you're a veteran, um, would you stand just for a quick second? I know you probably don't want a lot of attention, but if you could stand for a quick second so we could just say thank you, communicate our appreciation to you. Thank you, guys. Um, you know, that's a big deal, and I, I was taught um, early on to be very thankful for that, and, uh, and especially in terms of that, that as, as uh, John Adams, uh, to paraphrase John Adams in a, in a letter to his wife, saying that, that they were studying war and politics so that their sons and, and their children and their children's children could, could study whatever they wanted to, essentially. And um, I was able to study psychology and theology because some of you were studying war, and I appreciate that very much. So, um, and for my kids and others as well. Um, also want to make sure you know, um, you may have noticed we did not pass the baskets during the offering time as normal. We'll be doing that at the end of the service, that when you leave, there'll be people at the back with baskets. So if you need to prepare a check or something like that, just make sure that's going to, know that's going to happen at the end of the service. I don't want you to be surprised at the end, um, just, just as far as the timing thing today. Um, also, um, I also would, as a discipline, we don't really run into this much anymore at this church, but as a discipline, I want to comment on how grateful we are that we have kids um, at our church, and that we have little kids, and we have kid noises, and that we have kids doing kid stuff, and it's a, it's a natural tendency sometimes for us to like, um, you know, for us to kind of, uh, if you grew up in church, maybe, maybe you've got a, a temptation to cut your eyes over at somebody who's, whose kids are making kid noises and stuff like that, and recognizing we're so grateful to have kids here, to, that God has blessed us with kids, and and so even as we're training them and helping them learn discipline and all that kind of stuff, we know that's a messy process. We all do. And so we would say, one, um, we're thankful to God that he has provided us with so many young people and children in the church. There's a lot of churches that would give anything to have children's noises in their church again. And so we're, we're very grateful for that. If you've got that part of you in your heart that's tempted to kind of cut your eyes over at some um, young mom or dad who's, who's maybe their kids are being a little too kiddish for you, um, it may be a problem in your heart. Not, not necessarily with them. And so for us to be working that out within, our, within ourselves to figure out, okay, um, we need to be grateful in the midst of all that and to come alongside people. Again, that's really not a problem here, I don't think, but as a discipline a few times every year to remind us that's our view. Um, and then you may not have ever picked up on the fact that we sing How Firm a Foundation every time we do um, a family dedication. Um, and that's to remind us yet again that foundation, um, the, that soul that is that is on that trust in Christ will not be put to shame. Well, the, the home is where that begins to teach children. This is the foundation. These are the foundations of who we are, of our identity, um, and that worked out really well for us to be talking about today. As we take uh, one of our very rare mini breaks from the Book of John in the last couple of years, but um, is to talk a little about identity. Let me tell you what inspired this. Um, and, and though we are, we'll be looking at the book of John some today, but what inspired this, our young people, fifth and sixth graders this week, many of them, 50-something of them, went through a series of classes about identity, about learning what their identity is and, and where we find identity. This is, a, this is a real crisis that we've got and so in our culture, and, and it's not getting better, and it's, it's quickly getting worse. And so for us as the church to be able to step up and lead in this, we'll talk more about this as we go. 
Um, but where do we get these ideas for identity? Where do we get the idea of who we are and where we came from and, and what we are? What competes for the right to determine our identity? What are the things that compete to tell us or sell us our value? Um, in our culture, one of the main places where that's happening now um, is one of the main messages that's being passed along now is maybe one of the new and I would say scariest um, expressions of identity out there. Um, you see it all over the place. Some message of you be you. Um, this, is, this is the fundamental message. You be you, you do you for you, right? Be you for you, be you, do you for you. Now, what's funny is it struck me in the first service, I hadn't planned on saying it this way, but it struck me in the first service, I said, if you're an adult, you will, you will look at that and you will say, wow, that's dangerous. Like what an empty, worthless, meaningless, valueless, isolating life that those three statements would create. And then I realized, gosh, actually, I feel like that's what makes someone an adult, is their ability to look at that and say, that's an empty, valueless philosophy. Like, that's almost like an adult test. Like, well, how do you see this? That's great. Okay, not an adult. Like, it would be almost a good evaluation for that. This is, this is a scary thing because of a vast, maybe the majority now of people in America would look at that and, and, and cheer that concept rather than recognize just the flat emptiness. I mean, that is, that is a puff of smoke, and it won't take anything to blow that away. There's nothing, just the tiniest breeze, and it will cease to be there. The UBU messages, or even, even the other one that I found as I was looking for these, this will be a good one. We can put this maybe on a bracelet, right? You decide who you are. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, we're, this is, we're going to talk about this, but that's a little bit like you being team captain and choosing you first. Um, that's, that doesn't work. That's, there's a nonsensical aspect to that. You decide who you are. You, you don't look to anybody else. And as we're, as we're doing this radical autonomy idea in our culture now, um, that you go like, yeah, that's, that's kind of silly. It, I suspect it will lead to a massive increase in, in symptoms of mental illness, suicide, that kind of stuff over the next few years until we, until we recognize the dangers of this. I, I think we will continue to see it. And, and probably the culture's mindset will be to just double down on it and triple down on it and, and to continue to go all in, double or nothing on it, and what they're going to get is nothing, 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 nothing. Um, double or nothing is a foolish bet for any of you who are gamblers out there. You don't, if, you're, if you're winning, you don't ever want to do that one. That's a foolish bet. This idea of radical autonomy offers us so little. So when you're, when you're, you're not a passive member of your own identity, I'm not going to teach that for sure, but but you're not responsible for the fifth and sixth graders who went through that program this week. Just encourage you to hear this. You're not responsible to come up with your own identity, and you're not responsible to support that identity. You're not responsible to figure that out. Human beings do not create from nothing. It is absolutely the idea that we create is a little bit of a misnomer. We may invent, meaning we take things that already exist and put them together, but to call us creative. It's not technically accurate in that we don't create ex nihilo from nothing. And for me to tell a fifth grader or sixth grader, hey, you need to create who you are and don't use anything else to do it. You just create who you are. Wow. They're not capable of doing that. It's not because they're fifth graders. It's because they're human. We're not capable of creating from nothing. So what we need are tools and we need things and we need, 
We need outside voices to speak, to help us guide us through this and to understand who we are. We all need this and we all continue to need it. In fact, it's, it's nonsensical, it's absurd that we would not use that. What struck me is the idea, so that's a, literally a message from the outside saying, you be you, you make it up yourself. Yeah, who says? You understand that that's a message telling us about our identity from someone telling us that no one can tell us about our identity. Where do they get off telling me that I should do it myself? Who are you to tell me I should do it myself? What if I don't want to do it myself? Huh? I'll be, I'll be me. You don't tell me to be me. I'll tell me to be me. It's, it, just, it all falls apart so quickly, and yet this is what people are building their entire identity on. To call it sand is to insult sand. This is a smoky foundation. This is, an, this is a vaporous foundation. You're building on nothing. It doesn't support the very first brick falls straight through. What are some of the things that people look to to tell them who they are now? Okay, other people. Job? Popularity? Yeah, family? Social media? I mean, this is huge, isn't it? I mean, social media is now taking, I mean, it's going from nothing to everything so quickly. There's like no other source for identity for a lot of young people today. That's where they go for every little thing. I mean, the entire goal in life is to have a video go viral. I mean, that's, that's your whole goal is to get some more approvals, more likes and more, more tags and, and more whatever. <laughs> what are the things? I mean, we all have these. We all look to these. These are all can be idols that tell us about ourselves. Media, my peers, my fans, my critics, my success, my failure. Parents, inner voices, disorders, body type, abusers, my pastor, my church, Hollywood, Disney, sports, advertisement, bank accounts, my own preferences, my own attractions, my own opinions, my own politics. These are all the things demanding to get to define your identity. Each of them may have a role in our identity, but they are not our identity. They cannot offer that. They are, they are absolutely incapable of offering that fundamentally. Think of the slavery potential in that list. I mean, the potential in that, the things that we, are, that we are drawn to, that we're addicted to, the things that we comfort ourselves with, the things that we tell ourselves or that others tell us, how easy it is for us to do that. Also, what struck me is to think of the freedom potential here. Do you understand why it's so important that the church stand on certain solid ground? That there are certain things that we stand on, there are certain foundations that we stand on because when, as the world is running out of these, as these come in conflict with one another, as they drop stones through smoke and call that a foundation, they're going to be looking for something eventually, at least at the individual level, people are going to say, I need some help here. This whole generation is going to be failed by the worldly generation. And where's the church going to be at the end? Are we just going to be doing the same thing and offering the same stuff? Or is there going to be something different that we can do? It's terrifying and very frightening and, and, and depressing. It's really kind of sad that there's new reports coming out on just how much of this weight, for example, is being carried by adolescent girls right now. There's new studies and stuff coming out about how much weight this is. Do you know that our counseling practice, for the first time ever, in, and I've been doing therapy for 20-something years, the first time ever, <clears throat> we're running into young people <clears throat> who come to counseling, not for their issues, but to deal with the stress created by their friends' issues. 
they're, they're now coming to counseling because they, they, it's not that they have something they want to talk about their own life. It's that they have to come talk about the stress and anxiety and panic that they're having because of the issues their friends have. And their friends are, are bombarding them with these messages, what they feel moment to moment, day to day, constantly, and there's no shutting that off. And so the pressure of, they, you, we, we cannot by ourselves support our own identity. How are we supposed to support all of our friends' identities? We can't. And so we're collapsing more and more under the weight of this, this constant pressure and this constant message. And when Jesus asked what the world said about him, who do, who do people say that I am? The world is awful at this. It truly is tragically bad at it. It's, it, it can tell us so little of value about ourselves, and it's so untrustworthy to tell us. It's, it's, I said in the, in the first service, it's this, it, it, that the best, at the best, understand that the identity the world will give you is the, world, is the identity the world wants you to have, needs you to have. The world needs something from you, so it wants you to be that. So it'll get that from you. That's what the world, how the world saw Jesus. Even those who, who were not badly motivated, what they saw in Jesus was what they needed or wanted him to be so they could get something for themselves. Versus the identity, and, and that's the best option. If you accept the world's identity as it prescribes it on you, your best option is that it's being self-absorbed and egocentric and demanding. That's your best option. The worst option is that it is maliciously trying to tear down your identity so that you will think you need them. It's maliciously and intentionally trying to tear down your identity so that you will walk away with a sense of, I need something else to prop up my identity. I need the approval of the world. I need the stuff of the world. I need the things the world can sell me in order to find value in myself. The emptiness, it just piled emptiness piled upon emptiness. This is part of why we do these, dedicated, these devoted Sundays and we look at these dedications, we look at communion, we look at baptism. Part of this is to remind ourselves some things about our identity, who we are. Family dedication is kind of obvious how it does that, um, that, that, and you're going to hear a bunch of passages about how family, the transcendent concept of family, family which predates the creation of mankind, the concept of family which predates creation, that we're going to need to live out some version of that um, here on earth, some version that's meant to teach us something. That's obvious with family dedication. We'll talk more about that. You'll hear a bunch of verses about family in a minute. How does baptism communicate identity? Galatians 3.27 kind of gives us an answer of this. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. The idea of baptism is dying, D-Y-E. The idea of you have a white shirt and you dunk it in red dye and when you pull it out, back out, you don't say, hey, here's my white shirt that I put in red dye. It's now a red shirt. Something has changed about that shirt. That's the concept behind baptism. You go in one thing, you come out another thing. That's, a, that's an important concept for identity, obviously. How about communion that we're going to take together in a few minutes? Um, in, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthians, we can all be grateful for the fact that Corinthians were doing church very, very badly. Um, and they had messed up so many different aspects of church that Paul had to write an extensive letter, multiple chapters, correcting every little thing they were doing wrong. Now, we have to wrestle through, as we continue to do 2,000 years later, to wrestle through exactly what is prescriptive for how different church is today than it was then. But, but when we look at some of these ideas, um, and, and our Paul is going to share some of this again in a minute, um, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul writes, the cup of blessing that we bless 
Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So here's, it's a magic word. It, the magic word is identification. It's a magical concept that we identify with Christ and that Christ identifies with us. Very similar to another word, identity. See, we, we have placed some of our identity in Christ. We've placed our identity in Christ. And what's crazy is he also places some of his identity in us and he allows us to, to partake in that righteousness, that identity with him. And then we get to share identity with one another. So we get to identify with him and he identifies with us and we identify with each other. I am one of his. If, you're as one of his, if, you've, if you've been adopted by him, you are one of his. We are one of his. Well, that doesn't work. We, all, we are all his, right? When, we, when I taught on the church um, uh, back in January, we summarized this is what the church is. The church can be summarized in three words. We are his. And those of us who are his, we are the church. I am one of his. You are one of his. We are all his. All y'all, to quote the Greek, are his, right? It's good enough for me. Paul, Paul um, um, again, McKenzie, talked about this in the last one we did communion last time. This idea that, that part of what we're proclaiming is this blood, it's good enough for me, it's good enough for you. It's good enough for us. This body broken is good enough for me and it's good enough for you and it's good enough for us. We're proclaiming that together. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. So second, as we take communion, and those who are involved in taking communion, uh, go ahead and come up. Those of you with verses, hold on one second. Everybody else, those are going to be passing um, and that kind of stuff. Let's go ahead and start this. Paul, come on up. Um, and y'all can go ahead and start passing the plates. Um, and by the way, there's two cups. Um, that threw off some people first service. They're stacked inside of each other. The bread's in one and the, the juice is in the other one. Don't get thrown off by that. All right, so as, as Paul's going to share, listen for this idea of identity wrapped into this concept, wrapped into this concept of communion as we take communion together, as we take the Lord's Supper together. Um, now, before Paul goes, as they're passing those out, I asked some of you, um, I handed some of you verses and asked you to, um, to be prepared to read those. If you could come forward now, let me get this ready. It doesn't matter. All of you who have verses, come forward. Doesn't matter what order you come up here. Form kind of a line, and if you would just come up and um, and read read that verse in this mic. Um, listen to these. These are all clearly identity passages from Scripture. Go ahead. Romans eight sixteen and seventeen. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Matthew 5.13 You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its salt be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
Ephesians 2.19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, citizens and saints. 1 Corinthians 12.27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and give it light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Galatians three twenty six, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian, a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 Peter 2.9-10, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 3.1 and 2 See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Colossians 3, 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, marrying with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lovely body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So it's, it's these proclamations, these truths that the Corinthian church had forgotten. This is why Paul's writing to them, because they've forgotten their identity, this identity that is shared among them that should lead them to unity isn't doing that because they've forgotten who they are, at least who they've been made to be. 
And so there's this disunity and this factions among, among them. And so the Apostle Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it is for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and yet another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. To this divided church, Paul is baffled by their actions. In his mind, there's no place for such a separation. Why? Again, because they all share the same identity. They aren't different. They are the same. They, like us, are his. We all are his, all participants in his grace. Ones who deserved death, and yet by faith, we now have been presented with life. Life no longer as enemies of God, but now as sons and daughters. A new identity as members of his family. And this, this is what we remember in this meal. He goes on and he writes to them. He says, for I received for the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing that in all the ways that you could bring about salvation, you chose to break yourself. Such suffering demonstrated is a testimony of your great love for us. Such love didn't leave us where we were, but sought after us in extended grace when we deserved no such thing. So as we remember your great work this morning, remind us of that salvation a salvation that has worked in our lives and is continuing to work in our lives until you come. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. So you notice we close that out with this phrase, for as often, or we don't, the Apostle Paul did, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I understand that's a, that's, that is also something about our identity Back in John 14, you may remember, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. For we're not so, what I've told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. He's coming back. One of the things that we're saying to each other as we take communion together is, is that as part of those chosen by him who have accepted this free gift, we're saying, Hey, this is, this is a tiny taste of the community that we will live in forever. He's going to come back and get us. I'll see you at the wedding feast. That's what we're saying when every time we take communion, no matter what we face, no matter what traumas and challenges and difficulties, no matter what successes and failures, that what we're saying is given all of that when we take communion, by the way, I'll see you at the wedding feast someday.
That's what we're saying. We're identifying with him, and, and he's identifying with us, and, and we're identifying with each other. He's coming back to get us. He chooses us, and he does new things in us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 may be one of the most clear identity passages in the Bible when it comes to salvation is this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This newness, this chosenness, I chose you and I'm making something new from you. Listen to this in 1 Peter 2, which someone read a second ago um, near this passage, but you were not a people. You, you, You get that. We were nobody. We were not a people. Now you are God's people. You were not you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. Do you get that for the world, making stuff up as they go is as close as the best they got? They don't have anything else there. They have no concept of who they are because they also have no concept of whose they are. There's nothing there for them. And to go, I'm going to just pile stuff up because this seems good is about as close as it gets. The idea of not being chosen or being chosen. So I want to take a second. I'm going to reintroduce you a little bit. I mentioned my friend Jason last week, um, my childhood friend I grew up with, um, who died a few years ago, about, about now 12 years ago, 13 years ago. Um, he died of pneumonia, actually, of all things. Um, uh, I have a picture of me at, his, at one of his birthday parties. Um, there I am in my little Spider-Man shirt. Nothing's changed much, is it? That's just what my kids wear, too. Um, he's, still, he's still popular. I like that John Atterbury has a Texas turkey shirt on that's an armadillo. I have no idea what that means. Like, I, I don't like that one. Um, uh, but, and then, uh, and then Myron's between John and Jason. Jason's there in the center in front of his Superman uh, birthday cake. Um, anyway, we had a, it was a great time. Now, uh, there's another picture of us when we're older at my sister's wedding. And uh, uh, that, was, that was not long before he, actually not long before he died. Um, and uh, we were best friends for years and years and years. Spent, I'm not kidding when I say thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours. And, and when I wrote about grief and grieving, I wrote about his death. If you see that on my website, that's a, a series of articles about grief and grieving and, and all the different ways that, that it can affect you. And I, got, I, deal, I dealt with all of them, I think, pretty much when Jason died. Um, but there's, I have another picture of Jason to help you understand who you were dealing with. That's him on the top right with the mustache that looks like he wants to kill you. Because um, he, he, he may have. That was uh, when he was a Navy SEAL. Um, and and um, so Jason was always a guy testing himself and pushing himself and, and, uh, and seeing what he was capable of and not capable of. And he would always, um, he was always trying to get better and better at stuff. So from an athletic perspective, even as a young man, he was, he was extremely athletic. And, and, uh, and so the reason this, all, I'm telling you that all of this is because there's one of those, one of those moments in my life um, when I was a sixth grader and he was an eighth grader. And, and um, I, don't, I don't know who came up with the idea of picking teams it's in school. Um, I assume it was Satan, but I don't know for sure if he, if he takes credit for that. But this was a terrible idea. If you're still doing that in any way, picking teams, yeah, stop that. Um, it works really, really well for a few kids and then is a disastrous nightmare for all the rest of us. Um, and so what, what was funny is having a friend like Jason, Jason was really, really quiet, so he didn't often get picked as team captain, but he was super athletic, so he was always the first picked um, when we would have dodgeball and stuff like that, kickball. And so I was not 
Um, I was a great, wonderful combination of, of I'd grown too fast, I was tall and gangly, I was incredibly, um, uh, I don't even know what the right word is, just, I just fell down a lot. And, and then you applied that. In addition to that, I was also um, a show-off, which there's a great combination, right? That's a, so that was me. And so when we, I would usually get picked last or next to last um, because I was going to be a nightmare. I was one of those few people at that age who could strike out at kickball. It, I was capable of pulling that off. And so what would happen is I would get picked one of the ones who would be picked last. Well, Jason, so one week we've got, we've just, we're a gym and the coach says, Hawthorne, you and Schwarzenegger, y'all are team captains. You pick teams. And Jason immediately picked me first. Now, now he didn't pick me. It's the only time I was ever chosen first. He did not pick me first because of my skill or because of my being a threat on the dodgeball, at least not to, not to that team, not to the other team. I wasn't much of a threat to them. Um, and so he picked me because he chose to. He picked me because I was his best friend. We'd spent thousands of hours together, and he would rather spend time with me than anybody else. And what makes Jason additionally cool in this is that Jason's, Jason's understanding and engagement with the social world was pretty much non-existent. He just didn't care. Um, he was enough introverted and enough of a quiet person, outdoors person. He just The fact that he would probably get mocked for picking me first, that didn't mean anything to him at all. It probably would mean he wouldn't get picked again to be team captain because if he was not smart enough to pick someone other than me as his first choice, that would, the, co- the coaches weren't going to choose him again. But that didn't cost Jason very much to choose me. Um, maybe something, but for him, he didn't care. Understand that as we're going through the book of John and as we're wrapping up the book of John, everything that we've been studying has pointed to this idea that Jesus Christ paid everything to choose us. You feel unworthy? That's okay. He chose you. He doesn't care that you think that about yourself. I mean, he cares, but that had nothing to do with him choosing you. You feel unclean? You feel unlovable? You feel unwanted? Whatever it is that's wherever you come from, Jesus saw that, looked at that, and said, yeah, I choose that person. And by the way, it's going to cost a ton for me to do so. I'm going to need to leave, leave this throne of glory, come down to a, a cradle in the dirt, And then I'm going to live life as a human being, experiencing tired, sick, exhausted, frustrated, sad, have to learn things like obedience, and I'll have to learn all of this, and then I'm going to drag the entire human race to Golgotha, where they're going to beat me and crucify me, and I'm going to die, and then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to continue that path. That's why we get the epilogues that we do, I believe, in the book of John, you're going to see (coughs) as we get there. This this phenomenal (coughs) little epilogue series that happens is to communicate to us, and he's not done coming to us. He's not done taking steps to us. He's not done choosing us. This is something that's going to continue to happen, and it continues to happen. It cost him so much. You think of the woman with the issue of blood, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, um, from Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, this woman, and this is the quick version of this, but this, this woman, the, the uncleanliness laws, the cleanliness laws, actually worked out extremely beautifully for women um, in the way that it's done for women of childbearing years. But because this woman's body was broken, this had somehow been broken for her. So for 12 years, she had been unloved, unwanted, untouched. She was not a part of her culture hardly at all. And there may have even been children. When she walked through town, if she was known, there may have been children who would walk in front of her crying out unclean so no one would actually touch her. This is the woman who completely isolated, defined by her illness, defined by her status, creeps up on Jesus, touches the hem of his robe, but tells us that she immediately knew that she was healed. But the problem is Jesus then calls out, who touched me? 
He's even traveling with a synagogue official, Jairus. And so you can imagine everyone backs up. The gasp that goes up as they realize this unclean woman has touched Jesus, the rabbi. And in the midst of that, before anyone else could speak, Jesus turns to her, and I can imagine she's, gonna, she's trying to explain, I'm so sorry about it. And before she can get anything out of her mouth, before anybody can say anything, Jesus turns to her and says, my daughter. The theological implications, the healing, all of that, set that aside. The law, the cleanliness rules, set that aside. My daughter, he claims her. The only person who hears those words in the four gospel message, four gospels that we have, this woman, my daughter, I choose you. They're almost fighting words. Anyone have a problem with that? It's my daughter. The unloved, the unwanted, the undesirable, mine. The man lowered through the roof, paralyzed from the neck down, as much as women feel the huge weight of being unwanted, of being insufficient, not enough, the main message of our, community, of our culture <coughs> to women. Men fear being helpless. We hate that. If, you've, if men, if you find, your place, find yourself in a place where you don't know what the win is, I don't know how to win this. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to solve this. I am truly helpless. Probably anger is what's coming out. It's, it's often good if you can go back and deal with the fact that what you really feel is helpless and confused and lost. But we don't like that feeling. We don't like helpless. And so when we don't know what the win is, we don't know how to win in a certain situation. We don't know what we're supposed to do. Man, can you top, can you top a sense of helplessness better than being paralyzed from the neck down? So here you have a man paralyzed from the neck down, carried around by his friends in a, on a platform or a blanket, <coughs> and they, they take him to another healer. So in his shame, his humiliation, he's now made a public spectacle as they drag him up onto the roof and they dismantle the roof. And for some reason, as a kid, I pictured them lowering him in ropes, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would they be carrying you know, four ropes to lower a man down through the... More likely, they just laid down on their stomachs on the roof and lowered him down with their hands. And here they are holding this man by the corners of a pallet right here in front of Jesus. And Jesus turns to this man in his shame and the embarrassment and the helplessness that he feels and says to him, my son. The only person he calls my son in the four gospels is this man. A man who is wanted, is loved, and is helpless and can offer nothing to the world. His healing is insignificant. He even, he, even, he even forgives his sins. But those are secondary to claiming him, my son. Understand, we are, when Jesus looks to us and says, you're mine, this is a claiming. I'm claiming you as mine. The importance of being chosen, of being able to have someone else tell us our value, have somebody else communicate how precious that we are, how, the kind of treasure that we are. And understand, this isn't just about salvation. This isn't only about salvation. Salvation is being adopted into his family. But even at creation, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It helps us understand what's going on in the conversation that Jesus has with the crowds. When they say, somebody comes to him and says, should we pay taxes? <clears throat> so Jesus takes this, <clears throat> he takes this um, silly little question and turns it into a powerful theological statement. Oh, somebody hand me a coin. So they do, it tells us. They brought one, and he said, whose likeness, whose image and inscription is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. They give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. Now, as a good Jewish audience, when you hear the word image, you automatically either think of graven images from the Ten Commandments, or you think of God creating us in His image. 
In this case, it's probably both, but we'll focus on this one. God created us in His image. What does that mean about us? Well, according to what Jesus is interpreting here, who do you give the coin to? Caesar. Why? Because it's His. How do you know it's His? It bears His image. You give to God what is God's. What do you give to God? Us. Why? Because we're His. How do you know? We bear His image. This is a possession statement. Mind. And we, we rebelled and we wandered off and we joined other sides and we, we decided to do it our own way, right? You be you. We decided to make ourselves God. That was pretty quickly done. Eve was the first you be you and Adam was soon thereafter, right? I'll be me. In fact, I'll be God. That was, the, that was the idea, and God said, well, I'm going to have to figure out a way to fix this problem, and so he did, because we are his, so he came for us. That's the idea here. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.12, I love this. Not that I have obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Why is Paul living as a dead man? I mean, he's, just, he's on his way to death all the time. Okay, I survived this one. Where can I go try to die next? Is the way the Apostle Paul lived his life. Is there another place I could go? Maybe they'll kill me. Why is he doing that? Well, he says right here, what motivates him? I press on to make him my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus made me his own. This is an identity. We changed families. We changed sides. We changed conditions. Those of us who are, who are his, we went from dead to alive, from far to near, from divided to united, from lost to found, from orphans to children adopted by the king. Identity is the issue. Um, a few leaders have stepped up in the last few years in regards to questions of identity, especially sexual identity, and one of them is Rosaria Butterfield. Um, this, is, this is two different lines from a couple of her statements as she talks about what, it's, what identity, how identity plays into all of this. We want to focus in on the wrong thing, and she's helping us, as with others, to focus in on the right thing in regards to these questions of identity. In one of her writings and speeches, she said, Soon union with Christ became an emerging component to my identity. This is a woman who was an activist in the LGBT movement, living out the LGBT life as an, an activist, a teacher, a professor, pushing this with all of her energy. Christ became an emerging component to my identity, one that competed with my sexual identity, and that sometimes made me feel like I was losing my mind, being pulled apart by wild horses. You can't, you can't live in two identities, and she was learning that. Listen to this. We can hate our sin without hating ourselves, because we who have committed our lives to Christ stand in His righteousness, not our own. Listen to this phrase. Our real identity is not in the sin we battle, but in the Savior we embrace. That is well said. Do, can we be described by the sins we battle? Sure. Do we sometimes describe ourselves with the sins we battle? Of course. Are we defined by them? We are not. Those of us who have turned to Christ, our identity is in Him. They're in His righteousness. If my identity is in His righteousness, it can't be in my unrighteousness. It can't even be in my righteousness. I mean, not there's any of that. But this, this is a beautiful picture of a reminder that we find our identity in Him. He proclaims things about us. That becomes our firm foundation. What does He say about me? What is His opinion? My opinion isn't trustworthy. 
Your opinion isn't trustworthy, I hate to tell you. We even mess up things like church. I mean, can you imagine the Apostle Paul coming and saying, hey, when you get together, it's worse. Can you imagine that, Dan? I was imagining getting a letter from Paul. Hey, when y'all get together, it's worse. I'd rather you just not do it. Like, wow. And they're only a few dozen years from when it was created, and they're already so far off that the Apostle Paul's going, yeah, it's better off when you don't meet. Man, that's, a, that's us. Luckily, it's, we're his. It's a whole different identity founded in that. There were three people that the, that the fifth and sixth graders studied this weekend. Jesus chose the woman at the well. And she accepted the identity that Jesus gave her. She accepted Jesus' authority and his right to identify her, to define her rather than her community. His identity for her is the one she accepted, changed everything. God chose Gideon, and at least for a while, Gideon was able to accept God's definition of Gideon rather than his own definition of Gideon. He was able to do that, at least for a while. Jesus chose Saul, and Saul accepted this new identity from from Jesus Christ. Saul even changed his name to Paul. So much of those passages, so many of the passages we've read today come from him, the Apostle Paul who was chosen by Christ. Here's one of them. This is a good one. If you need need just a simple few passages to look at, to study, to evaluate identity statements through, this is good. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Already. Wow. Chosen, blessed, with all of it. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Sons and daughters, the language. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, In the beloved, that's a title for us, the beloved. This idea of us being us, of you be you, man, how pathetic that seems compared to you being his. That's that's the t-shirt we should have made. The button we should have made is not you be you, but you be his. And accept the reality of that. Maybe it's even you are his. He has chosen us and given us this new identity, this new creation that we are that we get to live that out, the truth of who we are. Accept it, that you are treasure, because he says it. Others don't say it. Others don't believe it. Others don't treat you as treasure, but he says we are. That's who I'm going with. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have chosen us in your son. Before the foundations of the world, you founded our identity before you even founded creation. Father, thank you that you have placed us on something solid and we can live there in that according to that truth. And all these other things which may or may or may not, in some cases they're very important, in some cases not very important at all, and in some cases just detrimental. That want to speak identity to us, Lord, I pray that we would instead accept that you have declared certain things about us, that we are your treasure and we're your image. 
And for those of us who have accepted the free gift that you offer to everyone of adoption, the open, the ultimate and open adoption, open to everyone, that we would accept the free gift of being adopted by you, Lord. Those, those of us, you then give us the right to be your sons and daughters. With all the rights and responsibilities that come with that, princes and princesses in your kingdom, friends, ambassadors, Lord, you've called us all these things, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, but most importantly, a people that belong to you. Thank you that you have chosen us through the work of your son and the spilling of his blood and the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit. And according to your perfect foreknowledge, you chose us. And in this, we give you great thanks and praise. In all the name of the triune God, we ask it. Amen.